Greetings, everybody. Thank you so much for stopping by and making Paranormal Prowlers Podcast part of your day. Those amazing tunes you just heard is, of course, courtesy of the lovely Bobby Mackey. And as always, I am your host, Tessa Morrow. Just can't wait to get on the road again. As we travel on the road in our vehicles, we may be passing through areas and not even know what history they hold on to. Some of those places are bridges, of course. Some of us go on them every single day coming to and from work. And you may not even know the dark history behind some of these bridges, the deaths, legends and tales that have been told throughout the years, being handed down to generation to generation. And I've done a handful of bridge episodes and it's always fun. I always wait till I have a nice little group of them and then I kind of, you know, do another one, so... The first one that I want to talk about is called Stovall Mill Covered Bridge with the Chickamauga Creek down below, and it's located in White County in Georgia. Now, this bridge was constructed in 1895, and it's right next to a small town called Helen. It's only about 33 feet long, making it Georgia's smallest covered bridge. It may be small, but the haunts and legends are grand. Before the 1895 bridge was built, another bridge once stood here, and it was completely destroyed during a horrible flood that happened in the earlier part of the 1890s. Several people died here, and it is said that those who perished in the flood haunts the bridge to this very day. Locals, they truly believe that this bridge is indeed haunted. Several who have come through these parts have experienced strange happenings, such as hearing the sad sound of a baby desperately crying for help. No one's around. Also heard is the sound of a horse-drawn carriage. Now back then, there were the horse-drawn carriage hearses. Perhaps people are hearing the sound of someone long dead being delivered to their final resting place. We now find ourselves in Stowe, Vermont. Over 100 covered bridges are scattered throughout New England. And believe it or not, I have only been to one covered bridge my whole life. And that was when I was in Winterset, Iowa at the, I believe it was called Hog Covered Bridge. And that bridge was in the bridges of Madison County. And I just, I love the look of covered bridges. I really do. So it is one of my goals in life to just do like this total cool bridge road trip, if you will. But I mean, okay, New England, you show off. (laughs) Now, the Gold Brook Bridge is a sweet wooden covered bridge with the sounds of the Gold Brook flowing by down below. The bridge is close to 49 feet long and it was built back in 1844. Gold Brook is also known as Emily's Bridge and is the only surviving 19th century covered bridge in Stow. In 1974, it does land itself a spot in the National Register of Historical Places. It's considered one of the most haunted bridges in Vermont. 
people have borne witness to seeing these balls of light floating about the area. Some have heard footsteps on the bridge, approaching and coming closer when no one else is in sight. Just a tad bit unnerving. One common thing here at Goldbrook Bridge is hearing a distressed cry of a woman. Can this be Emily? Legend has it that a woman named Emily came from a very wealthy family and that she was in love with a man who was unfortunate enough when it comes to the money department. Her family, well, they stuck their noses up at him, much to Emily's dismay. She had hoped and prayed that they would meet him and accept him for who he was so he didn't have money, so he wasn't rich like them, so he didn't have gold spoons all over the place and China here and patterns there. She was in for a very bad surprise. They couldn't stand the guy. She was hoping that hopefully they would meet at their meeting place, their secret meeting place here at the bridge, and run off together. And dare she think, get married? Maybe even have children? Oh my goodness, that would be a dream come true. Well, she's at the bridge. She's waiting for him. But he does not show up and her heart, it is indeed broken. It's said that she ends up hanging herself right from one of the bridge's rafters. And it's thought that this woman haunts the bridge to this very day. Besides the balls of light, footsteps, and the woman crying, many have said that they went on the bridge and after this found their vehicle to be scratched up when they were perfectly fine before going on that bridge. Now we find ourselves in Kyleen, Texas, at the Maxdale Bridge. Built in 1913, the Lampasas River rushing below the Still Trust Bridge, and it's been a historic Texas landmark since 1990. Now believe it or not, this bridge was built to connect a farm road to the local Maxdale Cemetery, which is also believed to be haunted. The cemetery was established back in 1860 in Bell County and is a place where several heroes rest eternally, such as vets from Korea, both World Wars, and the Civil War. The apparition of a man has been seen here often walking with a very noticeable limp. He is believed to be a past caretaker of the burial grounds. Looks like he's still taking care of the grounds in death as he did through his life. The bridge has a tale of its own. Word is that a young couple were on the bridge enjoying a walk when something happens. I don't know if it was a gust of wind, she lost her footing. Something happens where the woman finds herself basically dangling off this bridge. She's holding on for dear life like any of us would be, right? And the man is frantic. How can this have happened? One minute they're hand in hand walking, happy as can be. Now he's trying to save her life. He's trying his hardest to help her back up to safety. He unfortunately is unsuccessful and it's said that she falls to her death. He is incredibly distraught. He's devastated. Who could blame him? He cannot accept the fact that she is gone and that maybe he could have made a difference in that. He commits suicide by hanging himself from the bridge. Many people who've come to visit the bridge have claimed throughout the years to see the body of a man hanging from the bridge there, and he's not alone. Reports have come in of sightings of a woman floating past the area in the water, flowers in her hands and on her chest. She's as pale as death. 
but people cannot help but notice how incredibly peaceful this woman looks as she just floats right on by. Others have encountered a shadow of a man while walking on the bridge late at night. Now we travel across the pond to Norwich, England. Fife Bridge was built in 1933 and is the oldest bridge in Norwich. It stands at the where the original wood bridge once stood, dating way back to 1153. Home to the site of the infamous witch trials. Many, they were executed here. The dunking stool, oh boy, the seat where the accused witch would be seated, strapped into the stool and dunked into the river Wensum. Like we see in other dunking cases regarding witches, or so-called witches, as many were innocent, and there's such good things as good witches too, if he or she survives the drowning attempt, then they are found guilty as only a witch would survive an attempted drowning. If the person drowns, guess what? Their name, it's cleared, and they are considered not a witch or a threat any longer. In other words, either way, you're fucked. You die and you claim to be innocent. Or you survive a drowning and are blasted as being a witch and you most likely will be executed via burning at the stake. Please. The apparition of a woman. She's been seen here. It's said that she was found guilty of being a witch long ago and lost her life when she was burned at Lollard's Pit. Now long gone and home to a pub. When people see her, they claim that she approaches them, asking if they could help her carry a bundle of sticks. The very sticks that burned her at the stake. What a truly horrible way to go, for sure. Legend has it that beware, <laughs> your first instinct may be to take care of this poor pitiful woman dressed in rags. But if you do lend a helping hand, it is said that you yourself will fall victim to a fire within a year of the encounter. And guess what? You won't survive. Now we go to Australia, Tasmania. The Richmond Bridge with the Coal River flowing below is Australia's oldest existing stone arch bridge. Construction starts back in 1823, and the 135-foot bridge is opened to the public two years later in 1825. Richmond Bridge was built by convicted hands. Yeah, that's right, ladies and gents. Convicts built this bad boy. Not only was it built by them, but they were in charge of the upkeep as well. Appropriately located at Convicts Trail, it was made out of sandstone that was quarried from nearby Butcher's Hill. That kind of sounds like a good name for a scary movie, right? Butcher's Hill. The man was last seen on Butcher's Hill. Until 1836, Tasmania's Richmond Bridge was the largest span bridge in all of Australia. No easy feat, my friends. A plaque at the bridge reads this, quote, Historic Engineering Marker Richmond Bridge. This fine example of early colonial bridge engineering was built to provide a reliable all-weather crossing of the Coal River, originally named after Commissioner John Big. 
It was constructed by convict labor between December 1823 and January 1825 under the supervision of engineer Major Thomas Bell and stonemason William Wilson using locally quarried freestone. It is the oldest bridge in Australia, dedicated by the Institution of Engineers, Australia, 1991. Unquote. An etched in stone at the site is this. Quote, this is the oldest bridge in Australia. The first stone of this bridge was laid on December 11th of 1823. Unquote. In 2005, it is recognized as a historic location and added to the Australian National Heritage List. And the ghost of a past convict is said to haunt the area to this very day. Mr. George Grover, he was a convict who was transported to Australia from England in 1826 for burglary charges. George would become the man responsible for a small crew of fellow convicts who would repair anything the bridge may need. George, I'm sorry, but he was a straight-up asshole. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. The man, he was on an absolute power kick. He felt that he was so high, so mighty, because he was in charge of prisoners, that he treated them like pure and utter crap. Newsflash, bro, you yourself are a convict. I'd love to kick him off his pedestal. The sandstone carts were hauled by the men, and it said that he would sit in the cart and treat the men like mules. Many sightings of the ghostly convict that he has been seen more often at the western side of the bridge. And burglary? Well, it was not his only crime. The council record states this. By 1829, he was the javelin man and flagellator at Richmond Jail. At one stage, he was charged with insulting the police magistrate and was given another 25 lashes. He was also charged with rape. In 1832, a drunk as a skunk George is walking or stumbling, hell, perhaps crawling, back to his home. By the time he gets to the bridge, he is dead beat tired, and he decided to either take a nap right there, or decided it was okay just to pass the hell out, blackout, whatever, right? Some time goes by, and he is awakened as he is being thrown right off the very bridge. He helped fix. A police constable finds him the following morning. Now, mind you, he is still alive at this point and he is questioned by the constable. He shares the names of four men, all convicts, and accuses them of attacking him and then throwing him off the bridge. He dies shortly afterwards due to his injuries. The four men in question all worked under him for the bridge. Them, like all the others, were so, so sick of his attitude and how he treated them. Well, karma's a bitch, my friends. If he treated them with respect, maybe they would have seen him asleep or knocked out or whatever and go, geez, we better help get George home. Take him home to the wife or whatever. Get him home safely, right? Well, pays to be nice. Sometimes your life is the price. And no one mourned the death of George the burglar, the rapist, the mean asshole boss. No one was ever charged with the murder. They had names, but they couldn't really prove anything. They probably, you know, open-shut case, ah, whatever, he was junk. He, boop, <laughs> he fell. 
Many who walk on the bridge, they do feel a sudden bout of pure hatefulness. You know, I, I get that sometimes where I, I feel a sudden bout of sadness, but this is just like hatefulness, hate in your heart. George passes his hatred on to others. Some say they see an apparition of a man and he is known to stalk some of the people. Some have seen what's believed to be his dog. Thankfully, he's not mean like his late owner. The phantom dog has been known to escort women and children safely off of the bridge. Now we find ourselves in Asheville, North Carolina, up in Bowcatcher Mountain, and this is Helen's Bridge, a beautiful arched bridge that was constructed with quarried stone, built in 1909 and originally known as Zealandia Bridge. So beautiful that novelist Thomas Wolfe would come here and visit the site quite often, actually. He liked it so much that he features the bridge in his novel, Look Homeward Angel. And there's a legend attached to this bridge here, and it has to do with a woman named Helen who lived in a nearby mansion known as Zealandia Mansion. Things were going good for Helen. Her and her daughter, they lived in this grand home. Her baby was her everything, pure joy and happiness, until one day, tragedy strikes. And it's said a fire takes place. One day, Helen, she's in the kitchen, she's making dinner, she's done this every single day. It's just kind of like a routine for, thing for her, right? Well, unfortunately, something goes wrong, a fire erupts, and it gets out of control rather quickly, a little too quickly for her. Helen is overcome with panic, and her first thought is, oh my god, I need to run to my baby girl's room, get her out of the crib, and let's get out of this inferno. On her way to the room, she's overcome by smoke inhalation, and she does pass out in the hallway. She's saved by the firefighters. When she comes to, she is told the devastating news that her baby girl could not be saved. She loses it. She grows into a severe state of depression. And who can blame her? She's numb. She can't stop thinking of her baby and the fact that she will never see her baby again. How can she ever eat, laugh, sleep, dream the sweetest of dreams, or enjoy life when her baby is six feet under the earth? And it's said that Helen goes to the bridge and she takes her own life. Another version shares that Helen was involved in a affair with an already married man. Affairs are definitely still frowned upon and obviously big no-nos, like just don't do it. But back then it was complete taboo. Many were disowned if they participated in such a activity. In results of the affair, she becomes pregnant. Much to her dismay, her married lover refuses to run off with her she wanted him to leave his wife and children and start over with her and their soon-to-be-born baby. She dreamt of living in this mansion with the man and their baby, imagining baby giggling, wafting through the air. Maybe she's in the kitchen baking cookies for her sweet little family. She cries as she greatly massages the baby bump of her belly. It will never be. Distraught and she is brokenhearted. She goes to the bridge and takes her and her unborn baby's lives. 
And it's said that Helen's spirit lingers around her to this very day. Sticking close to the bridge, many say she is searching for her baby girl. And it's said if you come late at night and say Helen three times, Helen, 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 she will appear. Sounds like Bloody Mary to me, folks. But people who visit beware. Many have experienced car troubles here at Helen's Bridge. If not on the bridge, then shortly afterwards. Get home with no issue? Mm, don't count your blessings just quite yet. Some have experienced flat tires, dead batteries, and even more, even a couple of days after being at Helen's Bridge. Zealandia Mansion, which was built in 1908, a beautiful three-story-high Tudor-style home, and in 1977 was listed in the Register of Historical Locations, itself is on private property, so please don't even try it. But supposedly... The bridge is available if you take the second bend on Windswept Avenue. And final one is Airtight Bridge. And I believe I may have mentioned this one before. It's a 188-foot-long steel bridge, which was built in 1914. And it's in Illinois. And the um, Emberus River rushing below. It is placed on the National Register of Historic Places in 1981. Now, in 1980, a badly dismembered corpse is discovered a short distance downstream from the bridge. For several years, the case remained unsolved, the victim's identity unknown, until one fateful day in 1992 when DNA came through and gave a missing woman from Kankakee, Illinois, her name back. Diane Marie Riordan Small. She had her identity back. But it wouldn't be until another 25 years later that the culprit himself would be identified and have to answer for his brutal crime. Her own husband was responsible. So disgusting. Has anybody ever heard of a divorce? Oh my god. It's like, even if you get away with it, I'm sure he was looking behind his back. I'm sure he was dreading the day, the moment that the law comes to his door and knocking with those handcuffs and guns drawn. And it's just like, <sighs> I could go on all day about murder victims and killers. It's just, it's a crying shame. Get a divorce, please. As I say when I'm watching my true crime on TV, divorce. So. 2017, it came around, and I think after so many years being a free man, Thomas Small was more than a bit comfortable and smug about the fact that he had gotten away with murder for so long. I would have loved to see the look on his face when he was accused of murder and arrested. Justice finally served. And guess what, baby? It's ice cold. Yeah, mm-hmm. 37 years, he got to live freely knowing damn well he took his wife's life. October 19, 1980. Three men, one a farmer, two hunters. They find a body very close to Airtight Bridge. The body, it was missing its head, the feet, and the hands. Divers search for the missing body parts, but they are never located. October 21, 1980. The police release details about the victim to the public, such as the sex, the height, the age, and other specifics that they could 
for a body that was missing so much. On January 2nd, the following year, sheriff's deputies, the coroner, and cemetery staff, they gathered together to bury Jane Doe. Someone, they donate a coffin, and the unnamed woman, she is laid to rest. In January of 1992, a woman named Virginia Williams, who had earlier on, years back, joined her mother in a Christian group, or what some may consider a cult, where they disconnect from family. And that's when I think cults, because it's like, why would you have to disconnect from your family and all your friends and everybody that you love and are familiar with? But anyways, not going to get into that. She eventually leaves this group and she lands herself in North Carolina. She's wanting to reconnect with family. She reaches out. She calls her sister only to be told that her sister has gone missing quite a while ago. Virginia Williams, she files a missing persons report with authorities, and soon after they take down the description from her, they realize, oh my god, this this could very well be the woman that was found at Airtight Bridge. November 22nd of 2008, a memorial service is held for Diane, and a new grave marker replaces the old one, what, this one bearing her name, her daughter, who was only two years old at the time of the murder, attends the funeral. For her mother, she never got to truly know. Justice, it's knocking. Oh yeah, baby, it's here. Decades after he allegedly killed his wife and scattered her dismembered body parts in two separate rivers, Thomas A. Small pleaded not guilty on Friday to the gruesome October 1980 crime. Earlier this week, a Kankakee County Grand Jury indicted the 70-year-old Small on two counts of murder and one count of concealing a homicide. He is being held on $2 million bond. If convicted, Small is facing 20 to 40 years at 50%, the sentencing guidelines established in 1980. Small is accused of bludgeoning his 26-year-old wife, Diane Marie Riordan, inside their home in the 400 block of North Michigan Avenue in Bradley on October 15, 1980. According to the indictment, Small had his wife's body in an attic for approximately two days before taking it to Coles County. He is accused of dismembering her body and tossing her body in the Amberis River by airtight bridge. Small then allegedly disposed of her head, hands, and feet in the Vermilion River. Her torso was discovered October 19, 1980. But the rest of her body never was recovered. So, I mean, this whole story bugs me, obviously. This poor woman lost her life. A two-year-old is now without a mother. This murderer who is, like, parading about being the, the mournful man who just lost his wife. But... I mean, that's all severely messed up. But, quote, Small is facing 20 to 40 years at 50%. The sentencing guidelines established in 1980. I'm sorry, but this is now 2017, right? When he's arrested? Uh, yeah, this crime happened in 1980. But guess what? For almost 40 years, he was a free man living it up. Uh, I'm sorry, but I think that he should get life or execution i mean i guess it's illinois which is like california 
The last execution was in 1999. So, but anyways, he should have gotten life, definitely. If not death, for sure life. But I guess at the time of his arrest, he was 70 years old. So hopefully, you know, he ends up dying in prison anyway. Now he claimed to authorities that they had gotten into this huge, gigantic fight. And then she packed up her shit and just left. He said that she would do that quite often. She would like just like throw a hissy fit and leave for a couple days here and there. And she'd always come back, yada, yada. Well, she doesn't come back. Shocker. He eventually files a missing persons report. And while this will never bring her back, I'm just grateful that she has her identity now and that her killer is behind bars. And even though I think, you know, again, 20 to 40 is a joke. It's better than nothing. This week's special city shoutouts go to Crosswicks, New Jersey, Gary, Indiana, Paranox City, Philippines, West Jordan, Utah, and Pompano Beach, Florida. As always, everybody, thank you so much. You are greatly appreciated. You are all so amazing. Do you have a story of your very own to share? Maybe there's a local haunting that you would love to see on here. Or maybe you would like to be a future voiceover. Reach out to me and I would love to hear from you. I love recommendations and having people on the podcast. Hit me up at paraprowl at gmail.com or you can find me on the Paranormal Prowlers podcast Facebook page. Did you enjoy this week's episode? Listen to the others. They are all phenomenal. Haven't heard every single one yet? No need to fret. Just head on over to any of those fantastic podcast platforms such as Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Downcast, CastBox. Basically, wherever you may roam to hear your other spooky podcasts, you'll probably find Paranormal Prowlers podcast lurking in the background. Thanks, everyone, and we will... See you next week.